You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to see you all here today. Uh, my name is Marty. For those who do not know me, I'm one of the pastors here at River City. You've probably seen me doing announcements a time or two. Um, it's my honor to bring the Word of God this morning. Uh, if you would, please join with me in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we love you and we need you. Lord, I do pray that you would uh, help me this morning. I pray that you would use me, uh, speak through me. I pray that the words that I will say here today will be faithful to your word. Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who will hear this message and that we would trust you, that we would know you better because of it. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Have any of you thought to yourself, within the last three to four years, this world seems to be in complete chaos? Looking, you can give a hand up if you want. Um, I have. And I'm sure you don't need me to remind you, but let me share just a few points to exemplify this for you. Beginning in 2019, a new viral strain called COVID-19 began to spread throughout the entire world. Now, unless you lived in a remote part of the Amazon jungle under a rock, there wasn't really a person on earth who was not affected in some way by this disease. COVID killed millions, and it seemed that no one really knew what to expect or how to appropriately handle it. Confusion was everywhere. People around the planet were terrified. And this heightened tension manifested itself in hatred and distrust and anxiety and division. The world was in chaos. And as if this weren't enough, during the same time, riots broke out in cities across the planet. Angry people venting their uncontrolled emotions, exploding in violence. Then come 2022, Russia invades Ukraine, leading to the largest land war in Europe since World War II. Millions have been displaced, and thousands upon thousands have been either killed or wounded. Meanwhile, tensions between America and China soar in the Pacific. Sudan is in a massive civil war. An earthquake on the border of Turkey and Syria has killed tens of thousands and displaced far more. All the while, in our own nation, shootings have become common news stories, even in our own community. 
And on top of all this, the cultural morality of the day is becoming more and more hostile to God. Sin is constantly praised and righteousness is condemned. Masses protest their supposed right to sacrifice their own children on the altar of themselves. Or others throw parades celebrating their pride in abominations against the created order. Chaos is rampant. It's all around us. But really, chaos is nothing new. At one time, the chaos was Assyria, or Babylon, or Sodom, or Baal worship, or Nero, or Hitler, or Stalin, or the Black Plague, or a corrupt church, or slavery, or the Great Depression, or terrorism, or any number of terrible things. You might say, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. Chaos has existed on this planet since Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the garden. When sin entered the world, so did the destruction that sin causes, whether on the macro level, as I've been describing, or the chaos of your own personal circumstances. The world can regularly feel completely out of control. So how do you react when you feel like things are out of control? Where do you go for refuge? What is your source of help? As we read our text today, I want you to be thinking about your reaction to chaos and how it compares with that of the psalmist. Our text for today will be Psalm 46, so you can begin opening your Bibles there. <clears throat> if you need a Bible, please raise your hand, and someone, hopefully, will be coming down the center aisles, and they can get you one. In our blue church Bibles, uh, the page is 269. Blue Bibles, page 269. Now, three times in this psalm, the word selah is used. Now, you've probably seen that in other psalms. Uh, it is believed that this Hebrew word is meant to be a pause for reflection. So when I'm reading this, I'm going to do that. Each time our psalm says Selah, I will pause for a moment so we can quietly reflect on what was just said. Psalm 46, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. 
God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Today, I want us to take away three things from this psalm. The first is that God is with us as our refuge through any chaos. Secondly, God is infinitely greater than any chaos. And third, we ought to praise him because of it. Those are my three big ideas for this message. And my overarching big idea that will pull it all together comes from verses seven and 11. And it is simply this. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. So let's start with point number one. God is with us as our refuge through any chaos. And verse one sets the theme for kind of the entire psalm right here. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, did you notice that it says that God is not just present, but that he is very present? Now, I think this is kind of funny because I would generally think of someone as either being present or not present. So the word very here seems a little unnecessary. But I think we all know there are times when we're not fully present. I will confess I've been at numerous meetings in my life where I've only been half present. Maybe you've had a conversation with somebody who is only half present. They may be looking at you, but you know that their mind is a hundred miles away. It's not very polite, is it? That person isn't very much help to you, are they? So that may give us a clue why the psalmist here emphasizes that God is not only present, but he is very present. God is here, not just in person. He is intimately involved in what is going on. God isn't just passively watching your life like a movie with a bag of popcorn. God is active. He is concerned. He is working. Our God is very present. Even now, at this very moment, think about this. God is not just passively observing the service, wondering what's going to happen next. God is here 
right now. He's giving me the strength I need to give this message, and he's working in many of your hearts to receive his word today. Our God is very present. And that's a reassuring truth because sometimes he doesn't feel very present. An example of this would be verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. If there were ever a time where it probably felt like God was distant, it would be if the earth itself began to fall away. If the ground beneath us right now started to become unstable, if the mountains, not that we have mountains here, but if we had mountains and they started to be thrown into the ocean, it would probably be pretty easy to start to wonder, where is God right now? Now, these two verses are obviously poetic hyperbole. They are an exaggeration. But I think that is intentional on the author's part because he's trying to make a point. And I believe the point is this. Even if the worst were to happen, God is still our very present help in trouble. Even if everything around us and even inside of us is chaos, God is still present. And therefore, what should be our response? The beginning of verse two. Therefore, we will not fear. If God is with us, we don't need to fear. That is an incredible statement. God is with us, very with us, and he helps us in our time of need. He gives us refuge and strength. Now, that doesn't mean that God will save us from all of our suffering. Verse 1 doesn't say that God will keep us from trouble. It says that God is our help in trouble. It says that while the chaos of the world is going on and trouble is everywhere, God is even more there. And so we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to fear. Now, I'll be honest with you all. I am not completely there yet. I strive to be, and I am growing in this, but I still fall into fear. Verses 2 and 3 seem to be describing the worst-case scenario that the psalmist could think of. And I sometimes imagine the worst-case scenario happening, and it's hard for me not to be afraid. But what the psalmist is saying is that with God present, we don't need to fear. If we have God Almighty on our side, the Lord of hosts, then we don't have to fear. Over the past month, I've been thinking about this message and this psalm a lot. I've prayed verse one here to myself many times. I've been reminding myself of its truth and working in my heart to believe that truth. 
Because it's one thing just to know a verse like this. I've actually had this verse memorized for a number of years thanks to a children's song that I listen to with my kids. It's a great way to learn Bible verses, by the way. I've known the verse. I've had the knowledge in my mind. The hard part is believing it. The hard part is truly resting in it. See, I would guess that most people in this room, even before I started speaking here today, you knew in your mind the biblical teaching that we should not fear because God is with us. This isn't really a complex seminary-level theological concept here. This is fairly close to Christianity 101. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. It's, it's easy to know that in our heads, that God is with us and he is our helper, but it can be a struggle to live it out. So my challenge for all of you today is to believe what these verses are saying. Actively make the choice to trust God and not to fear. Now I have a question for you all, and I want you to think about this for a moment. What is the difference between a mature Christian and a more immature Christian? See, it's not necessarily that the mature Christian knows more theology about God. There's a lot of really smart theology people who are fairly immature Christians. I believe the difference between a mature and a more immature Christian is the depth of belief in the basic truths of the faith. Whether that is obedience, love, trust, or really any of the fruit of the Spirit. Maturity in Christ is growing in our depth of these virtues. We are always striving to be more like Christ, to truly believe the basic truths of God with all of our heart. If you are a Christian today and you struggle to trust the Lord over fear, do not be discouraged. Continue to cry out to the Lord. Continue to seek him and strive to grow in obedience. And over the course of a lifetime, you will find that you know God at a deeper, fuller level than you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. That is the Christian life. And it doesn't necessarily come passively either. It isn't automatic. It comes to those who seek it, or rather to those who seek him. Now, before I go on to the next section of our passage, I, I do want to add that I don't think that these verses are saying that Christians should never get an elevated heart rate when danger is near. Uh, I don't think it means that we show no emotion in the face of trouble. See, even Jesus sweated blood and lamented in the garden before his death. But like Jesus, in any circumstance, we can go confidently and with full assurance 
that God is working for our good and for his glory. And he will give us everything that we need when we need it. This has been a common reminder to myself over the past couple of years. God will give me what I need when I need it. Let's go on to the next section, verses four through seven, but we're still on point one. Verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The first verse, or the first question that I ask when looking at verse four is, well, what is this city of God? To an old covenant Israelite, this would be an obvious reference to Jerusalem, which we'll actually be hearing more about in a couple weeks in Psalm 48. Jerusalem was the city of God, the location of the temple, which was the house of God. It says in the second half of verse four that it was God's holy habitation. So here we begin. We see the theme of God's presence with them. In the time when this psalm was written, God's literal manifest presence dwelled with them in the temple. But today, we don't have a physical temple where we go to worship with sacrifices and priests and offerings. Instead, we have access to the greater temple, Jesus himself, God with us. John 2.21 explicitly tells us that Jesus' body is the temple. So instead of lambs and goats being sacrificed for sins, Jesus was sacrificed for our sins. Instead of priests mediating between man and God, Jesus mediates between man and God. And every person who receives Jesus becomes himself a temple of God because the Holy Spirit will dwell with him. It says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. So just as the Old Testament Jews could rejoice in God's presence with them in the temple, we have much more to rejoice in for God's presence is right here inside of us. Back to verse four. It says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, do you want to know a fun trivia fact? Jerusalem has no rivers that go through it. The Jordan River is actually 21 miles away, which is a lengthy distance in a time when there are no cars, no trains. Um... So really, verse four, it's kind of a lie, if it were meant to be taken literally. But I don't think that's what the authors were going for here. Instead, rivers symbolize life and nourishment. If a city were besieged by an attacking army, a river was an enormous protection to provide water for the people. So what is the river? that makes glad the city of God? I believe that is found in verse five. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. 
God will help her when morning dawns. Once again, it is God who is with them. He is the river flowing with living water. He is the one who makes us glad. And with God flowing through us, we rest secure. He is our helper, as it says in verse 5, when morning dawns. Now, I think it's interesting that the psalmist here writes that God is our helper when morning dawns. See, I thought God was our present help right now. Why is he waiting until the morning to help? See, nighttime is the scary time, right? Nighttime is when I want help. Please don't wait until the morning, Lord. Please don't wait until dawn. But remember Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is surely with us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in the nighttime, even in the darkest hour. And God is also the creator of the morning. He is the one who brings us each, he's the one who brings us each sunrise. He is the one who brings to an end the darkness. So he is with us in the darkness, and he is the one who lifts the darkness. We see this pattern throughout the Bible. God is with his people in difficulty, and God brings relief from the difficulty. God is glorified when we trust him in the darkness, and he is glorified when he brings relief. If you are going through a time of darkness, if you are leaning on his presence in the darkness, like a child holding his father's hand in the dark, remember, morning will come. God has a purpose for the nighttime, but morning will come when he gives relief to his children. We can trust him in this. He will give us what we need when we need it. He is with us. He is our helper. He will give us what we need when we need it. In verse 6, we will now transition to our second point. God is infinitely greater than any chaos. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The nations rage. Have you seen them raging? I already expressed this in my introduction. The chaos of the raging nations is all around us. It is rampant on earth. War and violence and persecution and wickedness and impurity and hate. But amidst their raging, what does the psalm say? It says the kingdoms totter. They are not stable. Like a toy block tower that's been built too high, the kingdoms of darkness are on shaky ground. And all it takes is the voice of God and the earth melts. 
Wickedness may rage now, but its time is short. In Psalm 73, Asaph laments how secure and how comfortable he sees the wicked are. But then he writes in verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Going down to verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So often, it seems as if evil is triumphing in the world. It is easy to get discouraged. But remember, our help will come when the morning dawns. But their judgment is imminent. With all this in mind, verse 7 reminds us, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Do you know what the word hosts means here? I certainly didn't. I will fill you in. Uh, hosts does not refer to a person who welcomes others into their home. The Hebrew word that is translated as host here is tesaba, which literally means army or war. Now this is also true on Google's definition of the word, but you kind of have to scroll down for a while uh, to get to their archaic definition. But even Google will tell us that the meaning of the word hosts is army. So when the Bible says Lord of hosts, as it does nearly 300 times in the Bible, know that it is referring to a conquering God of battle. He will conquer his foes. To see this more clearly, let us go on to verses eight and nine. Verse eight, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He has brought desolations on the earth. Do you know what desolations means? The Hebrew word here, shama, means a waste or a horror. This is what God brings to earth, a waste and a horror. Not something you probably see every day in your personal Bible reading, but that actually depends upon where you are in your Bible. See, recently in my personal Bible reading, uh, I've been going through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And I can tell you that this, this is something I've been reading every day. For hundreds of years, God warned Judah and Israel, repent and be saved. But if not, you will be destroyed. And eventually he fulfilled his word when both Israel and Judah were conquered and destroyed. See, the Lord is abundantly merciful to all who come to him. He requires no payment. He requires no good works, no sacrificial offering to come to him. Jesus did this for us. Jesus gave the payment. Jesus did the good works. Jesus offered the sacrifice. 
so that God may freely offer forgiveness and eternal life to all who would turn to him in faith. That is the good news. But for those who do not repent, but remain in their wickedness, our God is a conquering king, a mighty warrior, a just ruler who will rid the world of all unrighteousness in judgment. It is by God's kindness and patience that he allows evil to remain even now. But his patience will not remain forever. God will not let evil remain forever. He will bring peace by defeating his enemies. This is what we see in verse nine. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. When evil has been defeated, when their weapons are destroyed and they no longer rise up in defiance, then all wars will cease. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon the famous 19th century English preacher puts it, who was quoted quite often this summer. The destroyers he destroys, the desolators he desolates. How forcible is the verse at this date? The ruined cities of Assyria, Babylon, Petra, Bashan, Canaan are our instructors. And in tables of stone record the doings of the Lord. In every place where his cause and crown have been disregarded, ruin has surely followed. Sin has been a blight on nations and left their palaces to lie in heaps. We have a history full of earth's kingdoms that have risen up and have fallen down, but God's kingdom is eternal. Listen to what the word of God says in Daniel 2.44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This kingdom is upon us now, the kingdom of Christ and all who submit to Christ as king are granted citizenship into the kingdom. If this morning you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, may I plead with you to do so. Leave the kingdom of darkness and join the kingdom of light. The invitation is open to all, for all who would choose to follow him. Finally, let us look at probably the most famous verse in Psalm 46, verse 10. And that is where we'll get our third point for this morning, that we ought to praise the Lord. Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In this verse, we no longer have the voice of a man, but rather 
we hear the voice of God. God speaks directly through us in this psalm. And what is the message that he says? In light of everything that was just said, in light of the mountains being thrown into the sea, in light of the nations raging, in light of the desolations brought to earth and the destruction of the enemy armies, what is God's word for us? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In light of such a God, what response can we give except to be still and to worship? If we truly understood the awesomeness of our God, we would understand the ridiculousness of trying to earn his favor. We'd understand there's nothing that we can do to improve upon him. We bring nothing to the table except our awestruck worship. And God tells us that this response will go to all the nations. All over the earth, his glory will be exalted. Our Lord is not content with only a portion of this planet giving him the glory that he is due. He will be exalted in all the earth. This is a promise. This is our hope. This is what it also says in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every soul will worship our victorious King. And even though God has no need of our services, God has chosen to make this happen through us. He has called us to the ends of the earth to make his name known, to declare his truth that through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, cross, God is with us. He is on our side. What a privilege that we get to be part of God's mission to the world, to be used as a tool in the hands of God Almighty, to achieve a higher goal than any other earthly pursuit that we can think of. But we can only do this because God is with us. The psalm ends again with the same refrain as he said in verse seven, Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is what I hope you remember as you leave today. God is with us. The Lord of armies. The one who only needs to speak and the nations melt. The one who is sovereign over the mountains and the sea the one who brings desolations to the earth, the one who makes the wars cease by his sure and coming victory. He is the river who makes glad the people of God, 
And for all those who have faith in him, he is with us. He is very with us. And his name will be exalted to the ends of the earth. The nations are but a second. His kingdom is forever. Be still and know that he is God. Worship him and exalt his name. And let us go and make his name great in the world with the power that comes through his presence with us and in us. Let's pray. Lord, you are with us. God Almighty, the one who created the heavens and the earth. Lord, every government is upon your shoulders. And no powers of darkness can do anything against you. Lord, you are sovereign. Lord, you are good. Lord, you will defeat your foes. And you will be exalted in all the earth. Lord, what a joy to be able to exalt you now. To exalt the true and reigning king. Lord, we pray, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.